Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. Being asked to produce this, even if it was, I mean, business plans are half research, half bullshit speculation, right? It's like, because a business plan basically says, we're going to be successful and here's how we're going to do it. And you don't know if you're going to be successful. And then, but now you have to say, well, here's how we're going to do it. And you don't really know how you're going to do it. You just know you're going to spend a bunch of money and people are going to give you their money. And at the end, you're going to have a reasonable profit margin. What's a reasonable profit margin? Nobody even knows the answer to that until I asked a bunch of questions and started figuring it out. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Gary Ray, who is the author of Friendly Local Game Store, A Five-Year Path to a Middle-Class Income, and the owner of Black Diamond Games in Concord, California. Now, Gary and I have known each other for 25 years. Can you believe that? We studied Buddhism together at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California. We've played D&D together on and off since the mid-90s. And full disclosure, I'm a small partner in his game store. Also, he is the Gary that I mentioned in my book. Gary, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you. I don't remember being in the book. <laughs> you're named in one spot. Okay. So Gary, just so for the listeners, tell us where you're calling from. Where's home? I live in Richmond, California. Okay. So which is a suburb of the Bay Area. So my store is in another suburb in Concord. So it's it's about 25 minutes from here. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Southern. Well, I was born in Pennsylvania. So until I was eight, I was in Pennsylvania. Then I moved to Irvine in Southern California. So Orange County. So yeah. I consider this home now, but you know, it took a while. For sure. So yeah. when you were growing up, I guess either in, in Pennsylvania or Southern California, do you recall like lessons that you learned about money as a kid? No, because my parents kept it secret. My parents did not did not want us to know what was going on financially. So when my father when we moved to California from Pennsylvania, that was kind of a difficult time for my parents financially, but they kept it entirely secret. And it wasn't until my father had his own consulting business that I kind of started seeing the kind of hand to mouth checks coming in, going to the bank, that kind of stuff. And generally, they never taught us anything about money or money management. None of the stuff that I make sure I teach my son, because I'm really concerned as an older parent that he may not be prepared for that stuff. I may not be around to correct him when he makes big mistakes. Right. So are there any experiences you had that stand out as really important in the development of your money story? There's a lot of mistakes. So there's a lot of instant credit card debt. 
at 19 when I got to college where, you know, they gave, I got a credit card without really a job and, and maxed it out. And I was pretty much in credit card debt all through college. It was only like a thousand dollars. So that was the, the upside to that, but it was perpetually being in debt for a thousand dollars and getting my car fixed only when there was enough money on the credit card to get it fixed as opposed to having cash, you know? So it was pretty, it was pretty kind of, I don't know, hand to mouth when I was in college, but I was a student. So I never thought of myself as poor or, you know, my parents could always step in and bail me out if something really bad happened. Right. I don't think I really took control of my finances until, well, really my first career job before that. Until then, I was just always, I still have bad dreams about not having enough hours on my schedule to cover the rent, stuff like that. It still happens now, right? Wow. Uh, yeah. So you, you said, and I didn't notice about you and your, your history, that your dad had a consulting business. So was entrepreneurship something that was in your family, something that you were taught or? It really wasn't. And the my father, the consulting was just kind of, he was already in IT. So doing IT consulting was very close to what he had done before. In fact, a lot of times, a lot of years running my store, I would think, wow, I should have just became an IT consultant because it was like adjacent to my previous career, didn't have any risk involved. There wasn't like a big capital expenditure to get started. So when I started the, the store, they didn't know what to think of that. They thought that was a very strange thing to do. No one they knew or in the family ever had a store. And it wasn't until like years later, my, my grandfather had a barber shop for his entire his entire life. And it took them a long time to kind of connect. It's like, oh, this is like your grandfather's barber shop. I think we get it now. I think we understand what you're doing. But it's very strange not having that in the family. I have a lot of peers that have retail in their blood and it's just, they're naturals. That's just a natural thing you do. This is very odd to me. This is, everything was a learning experience. Hmm. So I've known you a long time and I know that I, I knew you when you were, you had the big salary and you were in the tech job and I watched you kind of trade job for job to get a 20% increase and a signing bonus and in, yeah. you know, in that period of time. So you traded that all in for, you know, a five-year path to a middle-class income. Right. So what was your thinking there? I was miserable in IT and I had, I don't want to say I experienced the Peter principle, but I definitely, I went so far up that I could no longer understand what was going on around me. Right. Hmm. And that really made me unhappy because before I could be in control of like an entire IT system for for a company, for an entire company, I'm that guy. And that made me really happy. I understood it. When something broke, it was my fault. When I fi- when it got fixed, it was my responsibility, all of that. And then I got to the point where it was like, I was at a large company. I was at Kaiser Hospitals and I, and I was an architect, it was, which was in my title. And, and of course, long story, but somebody even objected to that title because I was in a different division and there was already architects, right? So I asked one day for a network diagram. I'm like, I don't understand what's going on here can you provide me a diagram of the network? And they're like, wow, no one's ever asked us that before. Turns out it didn't exist and no one could provide it. And no one actually understood how any of that worked. It's just, they understood parts of it, but no one, no one had, di- as far as I know, had diagrammed the network, or at least no one would give me one, give me a copy of that. It was, you know, it was kind of like you rode a bike and you asked someone to, you know, you could, could you diagram how this car engine works for me? And be like, no, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> That's far too complex. All you need to know is, you know, you turn the key, it starts. So how does that contribute to like misery so that you end up leaving? I have a level of control that I need to feel happy about what I'm doing with my life. And I feel, felt like I had no control mm. over anything that was going on. Not only did I have no control, but I had no understanding, which was even worse, right? 
It's not like I get what's going on. I wish you'd throw me in the game so I could do it. It was like, I don't understand this game and I'm not playing in it. So why am I here? And it took me, my last job, it took me six months to, I was there for six months and my boss called me into his office and he apologized that he had not really found anything for me to do for the last six months, anything relevant. I was doing stupid stuff. And so he had promised at that point that he would find me some relevant work and I gave my notice. That was that meeting. Uh, and I had already built a store in that six months. I had decided when I got there, that was kind of the final straw. And I spent my lunch hours across town building a store out to the point. What do you mean by that? What is building up a store at that point? I leased a space. I hired a contractor and I built out a, the space to be my store. I installed. So literally, literally, literally you built out. Okay. Like I would be there on my lunch hour, you know, inserting slat wall inserts into, into so, slat wall. So take us back to before that. Like you're working, you're unhappy. How did you have this, you know, we should, I should start a gaming store. How, how did that come about? It was a really, it's, it's a really, it's a cautionary tale, right? Because this is very easy. It's very easy for this to happen. I was at the previous job and I was with a buddy I was working with and we would just go off at lunch for a couple hours at a time because like we were just so disgusted. And we would go to a game store in San Francisco. We'd go to Gamescape in San Francisco and we talked about how we could do this better. And I would get there and I would special order things and they would lose my special orders. Or I would question like, how come you don't have this high-end product on your shelves? And there would be no good answer from them. So they couldn't, they weren't serving me at all. And we discussed, we could do this way better. We were just starting a store and he had been a barista and had some, he was a very smart guy, Carl. Carl had great understanding of how to run a coffee shop. We were going to run a joint coffee shop game store, which is actually really popular right now. That's a really good model. And eventually Carl left and I left and we got back together and I told him about how I was going to start the game store and Carl had already moved on. <laughs> he, that wasn't, he wasn't interested in the coffee shop. He, was, he had a fiance, he was going to get married, he was doing more consulting work that was more meaningful. And that was the thing is you can, the, the trap is you see a business and you're like, I could do this way better. And of course you can right? That's the first thing. Of course you can. But is this, should you? Is this where you should be spending your time? The other thing is there are reasons why that store wasn't serving me well. I was an outlier in that, in that business model. I, as a customer, I was an outlier. I was the guy who drove up in the BMW who was asking for, you know, custom painted buildings from, you know, hand painted in China. And nobody else buys that stuff, right? Except guys like me. And there aren't enough of me to go around. And I learned that when I started the store and filled it with all the things that I wanted is that, oh, people actually don't buy this stuff. I understand better now, like why the stores were not catering to my needs because my needs, I was an outlier. My needs were not uh, mainstream enough to make any money at this. So go back to this, to the idea of Carl. That, that was probably what, a year before you did it? A couple years before? It was like a year before. Yeah. Okay. Because I remember sitting around the game, the game table and talking about you saying, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. And I remember, you know, a couple of guys around the table saying, hey, that, that's a great idea. Let's, uh, you know, how can we help? And, and I remember you talking about traffic counts and talking about people walking by the store and walking scores and these kinds of things and right. seeking the right place and all the detail. And I think, I don't know who said it, but said, Gary, you got to have a business plan. You're like, what's a business plan, right? Right. So talk about some of those lessons that, you know, maybe partners mentioned it, maybe mentors mentioned it, that, that you right. learned early on that were critical in the setup. There were two parts to that. First is the business plan, which is basically the research 
that you need to, to open the store, both in things like location, but also the financials. Because I had no idea how to do things like an income statement. I had no idea how to project sales. I really had no, not a clue in the world. And I, like, I remember sitting in Excel and punching in numbers and trying to make all this work. Like I was faking an income statement because I didn't really understand how, this was, how it was going to happen, right? Or a balance sheet or whatever. None of these things made any sense to me at all the time. But being asked to produce this, even if it was, I mean, business plans are half research, half bullshit speculation, right? It's like, because a business plan basically says, we're going to be successful and here's how we're going to do it. And you don't know if you're going to be successful. And then, but now you have to say, well, here's how we're going to do it. And you don't really know how you're going to do it. You just know you're going to spend a bunch of money and people are going to give you their money. And at the end, you're going to have a reasonable profit margin. What's a reasonable profit margin? Nobody even knows the answer to that until I asked a bunch of questions and started figuring it out, which is a crazy thing to not know what your average profit margin is for your industry, right? To start a business and go, and I have, I have friends that are starting business and I'm like, well, what, what's the net profit for your for your business? Like, well, you, you expect to make a million dollars. What is your what is the average? And they don't know. They have to go research that. It's not, they don't know. That's not available. So the business plan was is really important. And my book is kind of walking people through the elements of that business plan. So that if you, the idea, the first idea there is, the first question is how much money do you want to make? And that's a very, it's a very transgressive question to ask in my trade because it's a hobby trade and there's a lot of passion. And right. to ask how much money do you want to make is kind of like, you know, what makes you think you're going to make any money? Let me see, you know, it's there. They don't want to talk about that. So that's where I start. How much money do you want to make? Now let's work backwards from there, right? Because then we're going to need sales to make money. We know our profit margin. We need to know what our turn rate is. So we know how our, how our inventory, performing inventory turns into profit, right? And then once you know your inventory, you know, generally how much capital you're going to need to start the business. You're going to need capital for that, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. You're going to need startup losses, you're going to need to, you know, including paying yourself because most people don't even pay themselves during this time. They just somehow survive. So, and part of the book is it's a discouraging process, right? It's like, let's start with making you money. Now let's go back and see how much money you're going to need to start this process. Oh, this is a lot of money, isn't it? This is six figures. This is like hundred, $150,000, right? Do you have $150,000? Maybe you don't want to do this. <laughs> Maybe, but here's the trap. If you don't have enough capital, you're going to end up with a buy a job and you're not going to make the money you want. You're going to constantly be poor and you won't want to quit because you still have this job and this investment, you have sunk cost fallacy. So that's what the book is basically about. And the it's funny because the store owners like to carry the book because it discourages people come in all the time wanting to start stores. <laughs> it discourages them from wanting to open a store or at least it gets them, it gets it to where only the people who are serious open stores. And we're, we're okay. A good competitor is great, but there's a lot of bad competitors. And the sign of a bad competitor is they're undercapitalized. They get desperate. They do stupid things and they ruin things for you. Right. Uh, so it's funny that the store owners like to like to carry the book and hand it to people for 20 bucks if they'd like to buy it. <laughs> so I'm imagining that the lessons that are in the book, those, these things weren't, you didn't learn these in the writing of the business plan. You learned these over the first 10 years of running the business. And I've heard you say things like, I'm finally making, this is 20 years later, I'm finally making the money I was making when I left tech. So do you feel like you asked yourself that question, how much money I want to make, and you've been successful? Or do you feel like you've been on a tread, you know, a treadmill and you're finally getting to a place where you know things are okay or better you know, right after a pandemic, right? 
I was making pretty good money before the pandemic. And now I've been forced to invest a lot of money into inventory. And now I'm making, I'm realizing that I had a lot of um, potential that I, that was unrealized beforehand because I was undercapitalized even more than I talk about. Right. And now that I've properly capitalized the business, I, I see enough revenue coming into where I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I can see, I am making about as much money as I was making during tech and I can finally pay my employees more. I could do those kinds of things that I wanted to do. It's a great feeling, but it took a long time. There were different stages of this business where, the, I mean, the more money you invest, like, you can slow your growth quite a bit by over-investing. And that's what we did. But it's kind of a, a boomerang slingshot kind of thing where it's all this potential energy and eventually it catches up and then the money starts finally rolling in. That might take a long time. You might be gone by then if you can't. Right. Out and there were a lot of years where I just wished to die, you know. Like, I was like, I think in like years like five through seven, I'm just like, every time I would take a chance, it would not make any money. It was just like, ah, this I'm just not growing fast enough to do cool things. I just wish this thing would either break out or die. And eventually, we broke out because time is for if you're doing your business right, at least in retail, at least um, time kind of is the main factor. You can't fudge time, you just have to grow organically to a certain extent. And that seems to be the only commonality of very successful stores is they've been around a long time. They've just, yeah. They do the right, you do the right thing long enough and eventually you're rewarded for it. So I know, again, early on you had money, but you had a lot less time and now you have a little bit less money or maybe you're finally getting back to that place where you have the same amount of money as you had, but you have a lot more time. Can you talk about the difference of being in those two places and how that for you was kind of a good choice? Well, if you go back to IT, I had money and no time. So I would take vacations and have car, you know, fancy cars. I would, you know, spend buy a nice car and then I would spend another 10, 20 grand making it my car, making it special. So and my wife reminds me of this because she hates this stuff, right? So that was I consider that to be you're unhappy and you're just kind of trying to spend your way out of your unhappiness with projects. And I'm not saying I've overcome that, but that's how I was then. And I'd go on vacation, but it'd be like a two-week vacation. It wouldn't be anything special. It'd be pretty typical because I would switch jobs so often. I would make more money, but I would never kind of accrue those long three, four-week vacations that people who stayed long, a, long, a long time in one place would have. So eventually, when I started the store, I had no money and no time. And I have to say, it was some of the best years of having no money and no time. Especially the first few years. I think the first year I had like three whole days off the whole year. And this, by the second year, I was able to take Sundays off, right? So that was like, I was working long hours and I was kind of breaking through my ego because I was, I remember like vacuuming the store for the, you know, seventh day in a row and thinking, I have a master's degree. I'm vacuuming the damn floor of this little <laughs> store. It's like, what the hell am I doing? What's wrong with me? And eventually, you know, that, that voice kind of quiets down. You That ego subsides you know eventually you hire other people to vacuum the floor and they get upset and they have an ego and you're like you know you gotta start you gotta start someplace and it's vacuuming the floor and eventually you move on it's just that i did it too i'm not asking you to do anything i wouldn't do so i've had no money in no time and then eventually i had a little bit of money and it went a little crazy because after not having money for a long time for years it was like you know a man dying of thirst you know coming upon an oasis in the desert you know so he's I spent a little crazy for a while. And eventually I started realizing I needed to kind of disengage personally from the day to day. And I, I got three days off a week and then I stopped working the counter. So I just do office work and I 
I'd listen for conversations I wanted to be part of, and I'd come out for those. So I could kind of pick and choose the interactions I wanted. Because after about nine years, I got a little snippy and got tired of, I got really got tired of people after that. So coming out when I wanted to come out was kind of a nice, a nice luxury insulated me. And that all came, I had a, I had a day where I remember being at the counter and I told my manager, I'm like, I just can't do this anymore. Just can't. I'm just done being at this counter every day. She said, well, then don't. Then don't be at the counter every day. Go go in the office. You're not, this, you're not was your this was your 10th year. Ninth or 10th year. Nine. Yeah, yeah, my ninth year. It took me that long. And I and I talked, I think I talked about it as in like there was this invisible ball and chain attaching me, you know, to this counter. And it was in my mind only. It was really I could have done it years earlier if that's what I had wanted. But I had to get to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And if I had gotten to that point at a different stage in the business, I may have had to quit. Uh, if there had not been enough money or enough good staff to take my place, I would have had to stop. I would have had to just quit. So I guess it was good it took that long. But if I had planned it, it probably would have been sooner. <laughs> it could have been sooner. And then COVID is when I stopped going in because I took over the business in 2020 and did deliveries, home deliveries and set up a new POS. And I kind of, I wasn't sure at that point after having a step back, whether I could do any of this stuff. Like I kind of felt like I may have lost my edge, may have lost the knowledge of the business because I had been in the office for so long doing that kind of work. But I kind of gave myself the confidence to say, oh, no, I, it doesn't take anything for me to walk back into this. I know, I know this trade. So I stopped going in to work on a daily basis. I don't work in the store anymore. I work from home. And that's been a transition, but it's been a couple of years doing that. And it seems to, I keep saying it seems to work, but it, it works. I can do that. And now I have a lot of time. And after COVID, I have a good income, a good amount of money coming in. So I have both. And then it's a question of what are you going to do now? You don't need to be there. You don't need to be home, really. You could be anywhere. And you have a little bit of money. Maybe it's time to Maybe it's time to go off and travel and do some things. So what is the answer to that? I know that you have a special passion that's burgeoning right now. So it's, tell us what that passion is. My goal is I, I want to go to Mexico and spend about six months out of the year in Mexico working remotely. And I've been working on, on Spanish for a couple of years now, almost three years, really. And I want to take a travel trailer in my big truck and I want to go down there and kind of live out of a trailer and explore different cultural sites in Mexico. There's these... Pueblos Magicos, which are these, it's a bit of a tourist tourist designation, but there, there's like 150 towns in Mexico that have something of cultural interest. And it's a, tur- a Mexican tourist board thing where they've tried to get Mexicans to visit their own cultural sites. But I, I see this as like kind of an excuse to go to really cool places in Mexico. So maybe they're not that great, but they're just, every place I've been to Mexico has been kind of interesting. So the plan is to hit each of those along with uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites and just do that over like a five-year a five-year period and then be done. And that's the end of that trip. I need, so, a, I need a beginning and an end. <laughs> so there's two things I want to um, pull on there. Well, two indications of one thing that I want to pull on there. So to get from where you were when you started to here is like a 20-year process. And it, as part of that process, there was periods where there was no time and no money. There was periods where there, and, and that was not like you weren't, angry about that. That was a good time. There was times when there was no money uh, and there was a little bit of time. And now there's some time and some money. And it took 20 years to get here. And you're preparing for this trip. The second part of that is you're you're preparing for this trip and you've been working on your Spanish for a couple of years. So it seems to me like you are able to commit to something and stick with it when it's painful and hard and difficult. How much of your success do you think comes from just 
either being too stupid to fail, because I think that's been, people told that, told me that I'm too stupid to fail, which is why I've been relatively successful. Stubborn is another word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad says too stupid to fail, but stubborn is a good way to put it, right? Overly resilient, like dumb, stupidly resilient. And how much of it is just luck? And how much of it is, you know, what is it that got you here? Because that's a 20 year period is a long time, you know, spending a couple of years studying a language so you can take a vacation. That's a long time, right? So how, explain that. The complexity of what I do. I mean, I thought this would be when I started. I thought I would retire. I had a boss who told me he had this fantasy of, he was the CFO of the company. And he told me he had this fantasy of opening a hardware store. I was like, he was from Canada. He was doing all this high-end finance work at a startup. He just wanted to open a hardware store. That would be like the thing, just the kind of relaxing thing to do. And I kind of picked up on that. And after I started the business, I met with him and I said, hey, I opened the hardware store, right? He's like, you're not supposed to actually do it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was his thing. It's like, it's a fantasy. You don't need to actually do the, the fantasy. But part of that is that he thought it would be easy to have a hardware store. And I have a store. It's not a hardware store. It's a game store. And it is wickedly complex and difficult. It's the most complex thing I've ever seen. It's taken me 17 years, 20 years, whatever you want to call it, to understand how it works. And it's and I'm still learning on a, on a daily basis. A wise person would have gotten into it and said, oh, this is a mess. This is just chaos. There's no answers to these questions. And they would have quit. You know, they would have stopped. But I have less wisdom, you know, and I'm more in my head. I'm trying to f- figure out how this system works. So that has, the fact that it's been so complicated, that it's such a difficult thing to crack, has kept me in it for as long as it has. Because there's always another challenge, another opportunity to try to turn something around, try to make something better, try to eke out a little profit. I think it, if it had been easy, I would have quit really, really early on. So it was the interest. It was the, it was the complexity that made it interesting. Yeah, which is another trap, right? If you want to talk about right. traps, that you can do it better as a trap. Um, getting stuck in something because it's so complex and being fascinated by the complexity is a trap. So talk a minute about the, about the trade-off. So I, you've, I think you've written blogs about the impossibility of, or, the, or the difficulty of retirement savings as a small, even a successful retail store owner. So are you thinking about comes, what comes after work? No. You're not. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. So here's the problem, right? It's if you do this and you're undercapitalized, it's going to take a lot of years before you can really save money for retirement for yourself. And you should do it as soon as. So the first thing I have to tell people, because I teach the young ones how to do this, is you have to pay yourself, right? And tr- just trying to get them to pay themselves is the first step. Because a lot of them are like, oh, I'm profitable. I'm like, well, what's your salary? They're like, oh, I don't take a salary. Like, well, then you're not profitable. Take a salary and then come back to me and we'll talk about profitability, <laughs> right? So you might spend a lot of years just trying to pay yourself if you haven't planned that po- uh, properly. Like I've, part of my book is to pay yourself on day one and never stop. If you can't pay yourself, you're done. It's, you should be done. You should go get a job. So you got to pay yourself first and then you got to pay yourself again. You got to save for retirement, right? And most people don't get to that. And I, I really didn't get to that until recently. And now I'm playing catch up like a lot of people. There's another stage to that is being able to have enough profit to save for your store. It's like, just like you have a, a special account, your store should have a special account for things that break or for expansion or for needs. And I have only seen a few stores that have this, like only the largest stores. I, have, I know one store where they, on every, in January, they have a meeting between the two partners and they're like, how are we going to spend 
our fund this year, right? Like that is just God level retail, right? Like we have money. How are we going to spend it? Because most of retail is about fixing things as they break and everything breaks. Absolutely everything. I'm replacing toilets and air conditioners and carpeting. And if you're, and if you're there long enough, you do it again and again and again. Just on a treadmill. And if you don't have enough money, you're just always digging into your pocket for, you know, the next. It took me, took me like 10 years to put new carpet in. The carpet was disgusting. But I just really couldn't come up with the money. Couldn't justify it for that long. So there's so little money and you just have to prioritize it properly. And I didn't do that properly. I could tell you what to do, but I didn't do it that way. I think you can save for retirement, but I think there's a stat that says something, some huge number, like 80% of of, store, of, of small business owners don't have any retirement savings at all. That doesn't surprise right. me. Right. So well, we could go really deep on that one topic I and mean, maybe that's a different podcast, but I'll set that aside for now. So the purpose of this podcast, the Mindful Money podcast is to help sort of real people who have limited access to professional advice, make better financial choices. And I think right. you can speak to the small business people out there. And you've never claimed to be a financial expert, no. but you have experienced some trade-offs and you've made some of your own. So can you give our listeners just one thing that they can do this week that will improve their financial well-being? And then we'll ask the opposite of that in just a sec. If you're not paying yourself, pay yourself something, even if it's like a hundred bucks a week. Right? So start just starting the process in your mind allows you to to then build on that. So I didn't give out any profits until I think my fourth, third or fourth year, but just the act of of giving out like a thousand dollars during Christmas to investors, that process built to where we are now, where like half my income is now is now profits, is now you know dividends. So I would say do that and as soon as you possibly can and maybe at the same time Start saving for retirement, even if it's one percent of your yeah. some tiny amount is just to get your kind of your foot in the door. Start the habit. Way. Start the habit. Start the habit. It's really starting habits. Everything yeah. I think for me is habits. If I can habitualize my behavior, then I will continue doing it. So yep. it's like so, I do a little bit of Spanish every day, just a little tiny, like fifteen minutes is enough to just kind yeah, of good. every single day. Yeah. Yeah. So at the same time, there's a ton of financial noise out there, like do this, do that, do this, do that. So what's one financial concept or action that sort of pervades culture, but we're better off just completely ignoring? I mean, there's, it's most of it. It's most, most everything like, well, here's something I can tell you. My business has almost the success of my business or the sales or whatever you want to call it has had, uh, does not track against any of the financial news of the day, Right. Like something has to dramatically happen, such as COVID or like 9-11 stopped a lot of businesses cold. But generally, I would I still spend a lot of time like watching financial markets and podcasts and things like that. And it honestly has no bearing on anything. It's I feel good because I have this context of what's going on outside of my business. But generally kind of minding my own business is probably the best use of my time as opposed to trying to look at tea leaves or other people looking at tea leaves. So it's like, it's ignore like, the noise, it's all noise. It's all noise, and it just rules out a lot of that if you can just if you can just ignore most of the noise, right? You you have a, I want to sort of shifting back to this time question, you have this story that you've told about a scoutmaster talking about your son missing a couple or more than a couple scout, you know, scouting events and, and the reason why and why that's okay. Would you just tell us that story? Right, so... My son loves scouts and loves being with the boys, but he despises all sort of sorts of bureaucracy, right? So he refuses to go to a lot of scout things. 
things because there's going to be a meeting. He doesn't want to go to the meeting. It's like, if they're going to go on a hike, he'll go. But if there's a meeting, he doesn't want to go. I mean, we missed a lot of scouts, a lot of scouting events. And we had just come back from this 10-week trip to Honduras and back, this giant road trip, this amazing once-in-a-lifetime road trip. And we pulled in the parking lot, and I'm in the Jeep, and it's covered in dirt. And I got, you know, got all this junk attached to it. And I'm, you know, I'm odd, odd man out, but I'm, I don't care. I'm fine. This is my life, right? And the scoutmaster comes up, and he's like, I, I get it. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, you go off and you do all these, you know, great adventures. You don't really, he doesn't really need what we're doing, right? He doesn't really need scouts. And it kind of it made me realize that that sense of adventure, the camaraderie, the adult male uh, role modeling, that kind of stuff is not available to all the kids out there. So kind of scouts plays that role. And I was kind of already, I was, I didn't understand it, but I was duplicating the, the efforts. <laughs> I was providing the scouting experience while he was in scouts and he was missing scouts to do it. So I don't, well, I don't know yeah. if, that, if that was the story you referred to, but yeah, but no, that's he, a great. I kind of was apologetic that I was always, that we were always missing these things, but you know, we're going off and doing these adventures and having a great time. Yeah. And you say that's a 10 weeks to Honduras or eight weeks to Honduras. And that's a once in a lifetime, but now you're about to depart for you're planning on the departure for six months and sort of six months a year for like five years. So that's, Maybe it's not once in a lifetime. I mean, if you build it right, you can kind of take that. You have to make choices, right? Yeah, you got to build it right. The six months is really tough because three months is a vacation, but six months is a lifestyle, right? So it then becomes like, what are you leaving behind? Who are you leaving behind, right? What, you know, you have, like, I can't, trying to find, I'm 54, trying to find someone who wants to go with me, who's my age. No, it's very difficult because by 54, you have roots, in the yep. community. And if you don't have roots, you know, you're a bit of an outlier in that respect, right? So I have a, a, one friend who's going to, we're going to go, but nobody else wants to go. <laughs> They'll come and visit you on your adventures, but they don't want to, they can't take the, the big commitment. Yeah. They, um, they join you for a week. Right. And even my son, I want to go with him on these adventures, but he's 17. He'll be, by the time we go, he'll be 18. We'll probably do a summer together first, his last, the last summer together like that probably, and then he'll be off in his life, whatever that is. And then the, the next trip will be the six-month trip, and that will be, I'm not sure who's going on that trip yet, right? That's a pretty crazy thing to say, right? Because it's I'm putting a lot of money and time into this. I'm not really sure who's going, and I don't really want to go alone. So yeah, so it's very different. And you, you start to realize, like, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to get away from? What's good in your life now that you're going to miss when you're gone? Uh, is this really what you want? Is there something you could do? It's not like that, right? <laughs> this is where having you have a partner who wants to go with you, you're in great shape. If you don't, you know, right? right. That might end a relationship. Who knows? <laughs> That'd be hard to survive for sure. Six months apart, that's not going to be easy. Yeah. So we started sort of asking you about lessons you learned about money. What are some of the lessons to sort of change the script? What are some of the lessons you want to leave with your son? You spend a lot of time with him. You, you're doing some adventure stuff with him. What do you want him to walk away with? I want him to understand some of the traps that I fell into so he can avoid them. Like debt traps are obviously really big. He really likes cars. I've unfortunately been influencing him with, on him with cars. So I'm trying to get him away from the car trap, you know? So we're talking about if he goes off to college, I want to get him a car. He needs transportation, but I prefer that he doesn't need transportation. My father told me not to get a car when I went to college and then I wouldn't have to work. And I could focus on studies and I could work when I came home for the summer. And within a couple months, I got a girlfriend and then I needed a car. And then I got into debt and then I had car repairs and I had to get a job, a bunch of different jobs. So I kind of like was told what to do 
and then didn't listen, of course, and then fell into that trap, which I'm probably still in. <laughs> so that's, and I'm starting to get him to save. I've got, he's got a, a debit card now. He has an allowance that goes on there. So there's different things that I was not, and I've always been very upfront with him about money and yeah. where we are, like what's going on with the business. I want him to understand that. My parents didn't want us to stress about that. It's like, no, you, you can stress. <laughs> if you're my kid, you can stress about where we are financially. Well, it's something you, you, you can keep this in mind, but you know, barbershops are pretty successful now. Maybe someday he'll start a barbershop. <laughs> right. Right. Full circle. Family footsteps. Yeah. So just a couple of closing questions I'd like to ask. And one of them, I think you'll know where this is coming from. So what's the last, the last thing you kind of changed your mind about? I think the big change is that I'm, uh, I don't want to buy or be involved in anything that requires me to work more. And uh, that's a recent thing. It's just like, it just makes me tired thinking about a new car or, I mean, I just got a new truck, but I have a mission, right? If it's not on mission, and it costs me money or future payments or future stress. I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with it. So that took a long time to get to. I think it's kind of my, I finally feel realize my future of work, which is there's probably a finite amount of time I want to work, a finite amount of income. The less stress I have on my finances, the more fun I can have doing what I love to do. So I just really get really tired with the kind of, what do they call it? The Rent-seeking economy where everybody there's a, there's a monthly charge for everything. Nobody wants to. Nobody wants us to own anything anymore. They want us to, to rent. Even my right. phone. I bought a new phone and I bought it outright, and they put me on a, a plan to replace my phone at the end of the, at the end of the period. One of the, the new AT and T plan to five bucks a month, and then you get the new thing. It's like I don't want any of that. I just want my phone. I want to buy it. I want to own it. I want you to go away now. <laughs> so that's that has to do with future labor. I don't want to be committed to future labor. Right. It's interesting, but you're right. We do add the $5 and $8 and $12 charges on a regular basis. You get, you know, something for cable, something for this thing, something for that thing. And so, you know, suddenly it's a thousand dollars a month and it's a real thing. And now you can spend $10 a month for a service that'll help you remove those other $10 a month charges. Right. So it's it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Is there, is there anything that people forget about you or don't know about you that you really want them to know? No, no. It's funny because I've tried to keep a low profile in the business. I've never wanted to be the face of the business, but then I write a lot and I've, and the business, I have become the fit, not only the face of the business, but probably one of the bigger faces in my trade, but not really on purpose. Like my search engine optimization uh, is amazing. Like I have probably the best SEO in my trade because I've just written so much on my blog. It's just, you I have to you know, keep online sales away because I don't ship. I have to keep those people away because the SEO sends them to my store when I don't want them to be there. So no, I don't really have anything that I'm trying to let people know. Buy my book? <laughs> How's that? <laughs> yeah, we'll put the book in the show notes. We'll put I'll actually link to the blog in the show notes. I think, I think business people, not you know retail business people of any kind, not just game stores would probably benefit from some of the stuff that you write. I share some of the stuff you write from time to time. That's just, you know, it's really sharp commentary on, some of the challenges that small business people face. And it'd be, you know, it's a good thing to read. So tell us how people can connect with you. I have a author page on Facebook, just Gary Ray author. You can see, I tend to write something every couple of days there. I mean, it's not the highest quality stuff, but it's what's going on. It's kind of the raw small business experience. That's probably the best way. I have a blog. If you go to my Black Diamond Games website, there's a blog link and you can read a little more polished blog stuff, slightly more polished stuff there. Sounds good. Yeah. Gary, thanks for coming on to the Mindful Money Podcast. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I think listeners will get something out of it. I hope so. 
Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. 